Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane. Today we are joined by Lucia Lizondo. Lucia, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Andrew. And Lucia joins us to talk about family life with respect to uh, Hispanic Catholics and the life of Hispanic immigrants in the life of the church in America. Lucia, could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I'm originally from San Juan, Puerto Rico. I'm married to a uh, pediatric neurologist, Ricardo Luzondo. He's from Venezuela. I'm the mother of a child. I am a lawyer by profession. I practiced family law, immigration law, and business law for 23 years, at which time the Lord had been calling us to full-time ministry. So after practicing and doing heavy ministry to marriages and families, particularly in the Hispanic community. The Lord told my husband and I to hang up our shingles, uh, my law firm and his medical practice, and to give away our possessions and to go as missionaries to serve those that are in the peripheries, those that are most neglected. And uh, we have done that for uh, 21 years altogether and full-time since 2011. I also have served in three archdioceses uh, in the United States as family life director in the Archdiocese of Miami, also as director of the Secretariat for Laity Marriage, Family Life, and Youth at the Archdiocese of San Antonio, and also I was director of intercultural ministries at the Archdiocese of Atlanta. Uh, right now, I'm leading our ministry, Renovación Familiar, Family Renewal Ministries. Uh, we do outreach also for Construyendo Matrimonios, uh, Marriage Building USA. And I am the director of Hispanic Outreach of the Person and Identity Project, which you can uh, find at personandidentity.com, which is a project of the Catholic Women's Forum. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this constellation of different topics. Let's start out by talking about families with intergenerational dynamics. I think it's relatively less common than it used to be for native-born Americans to live in a house with more than two generations at home. Whereas I think with at least the sense I get, I don't have any Hispanic background. My family's half Italian, but pretty assimilated. The sense I get from a lot of immigrant families is that it's much more common for a kid to grow up with a grandparent in the home or aunts and uncles or maybe multiple grandparents or something like that. Is that something that you've noticed as a different kind of family experience for Hispanic communities? This is different as it regards the normal family structure here in America, but it is not unlike what it is in uh, Hispanic countries of origin. So that is very common both back at home for Hispanics and in the United States. Here it gets magnified because many times families start coming in cycles. Maybe one family member comes first, establishes and sends for another family member, and then they send for their parents. So it is rather normal, especially for first generation or just new arrivals or first generation Hispanic families to have an intergenerational dynamic. Got it. I know when I was looking up my family history a little bit, I noticed that my great grandfather was the first one to come over from the Naples area in Italy. But then I saw in the records, his father was the next one to come over. 
which was confusing for me because I always thought the first one would be the oldest and not necessarily the case. That is exactly the same uh, situation for Hispanic families. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is the grandchild who comes first and then comes the parents and then come uh, the grandparents. Mm -hmm. And immigration issues also define you know, how people are arriving depending on their familial relationship and who uh, accomplishes being uh, legally documented first. Got it. Yeah, that sounds like a whole other nest of challenges that I think uh, our Office of Migration and Refugee Services would be way more equipped to speak about than I would. And I and I could in the sense that I practiced immigration law for 23 years. So, yeah. so I saw that that was part of I, I did law and ministry for many, many years both together. I think if they had a podcast, they'd be your next stop <laughs> after this. <laughs> but uh, anyway, with respect to those intergenerational households, do you have a sense, and I know it can vary uh, based on which particular country in Latin America that the family comes from, but do you have a sense that these, these families can have a different dynamic of talking about relationships and marriage, especially with the younger people in those families? Yes, the families that have, especially grandparents that lived in a time where marriage was an institution that was still respected. It wasn't being attacked as passe, as oppressive as some ideologies might considering as limiting of people's uh, advancement in life. Certainly, grandparents and older parents do speak as to the importance, the core importance of the institution of marriage. And those uh, children tend to have more clarity as to the importance of marriage, which is where the family is born. So it is quite important, especially if there are families where faith is practiced in a profound way. Those that don't have that experience may even reject uh, intergenerational relationships and would not pay so much attention to their elders if they are around. So let's take the example of a more assimilated college-age student who is maybe starting to date but not looking to settle down immediately. And her, you know, let's say, aunt or grandmother is maybe putting the pressure on a little bit to start looking to start a family. What's a good way to approach that kind of tension? It has to be done in a very delicate, respectful, and consistent manner. But that is extremely challenging because, as you very well know, our youth, when you're talking especially uh, in young adults, especially if they were raised in the United States, have been immersed in and consumed by the secular society, by nihilist, postmodern ideologies, where we can't even talk with any certainty in, through those ideologies of what man and woman are, what their role should be, the respect that should be from one to the other in terms of relationship and being in relation to how they should be treated and respected, it is completely different than what our faith and prior generations believe. So to them, to those youth, they find it very retrograde what their family believes. 
since for Hispanic families, you don't not only have the generational difference, but you have also the language difference because most youth and young adults of Hispanic background in the United States speak mostly English and Spanish is a second language. They're not as good at it. And their parents, their primary language is Spanish. There is another division between the two views. In addition to that, they don't believe that what their parents and grandparents consider a stable and moral relationship is a moral relationship. And they find that cohabitating prior to marriage, bringing their boyfriend and girlfriend or the person they're just dating, because today talking about dating implies going to bed together, unfortunately, that brings severe shocks to, to the intergenerational families of Hispanics, unless those parents have also been consumed by secular ideologies and they start being permissive or they see that their children simply rebel and go, leave the house and break the relationship. And to avoid that, they settle for allowing those kinds of arrangements in their homes, which is unfortunate. You know, before we started recording, you were talking to me a little bit about ideological colonization. Is this kind of an instance of that that you're saying? Absolutely. That phrase was coined by Pope Francis, where he called particularly gender ideology, ideological colonizations. They colonize and take over in a totalitarian way the mind of these youth to say that, first of all, they're self-defined. They're not created by a creator, male or female, as scripture says, and as biology confirms. They tell them that their sexual expression, sexual attraction, could be completely separated from their actual biological sex. That sex is not a process of self-sacrifice or necessarily a union of uh, man and woman for the procreation of children, but it's considered like a right of the person. The worst part is they're creating such emptiness and they do not bring the human person to plenitude. They think that they're reaching their independence to accomplish the peak of who they should be. And it does exactly the opposite. Yeah, it can have a really isolating effect for somebody, maybe a younger person who's inclined to adopt that sort of ideology that clashes with the culture of where their family is originally from. I wonder if there are any incentives they might have for adopting that ideology based on some kind of negative reaction they have to elements in their native culture. Um, Absolutely. In the the Hispanic culture, we have sociological phenomena that we call machismo and marianismo. Machismo is that concept in which the man is the domineering one, the authority figure, the one that has sexual freedom, the one that can use his spouse or or any person or any other women. It's macho, it's just a male. (laughs) Just like a little animal can be male. You know, a dog can be male, a horse can be male, but they don't have a mind to think with. Right. A man truly is, he who can kneel before God and let himself and his family be led by the Holy Spirit. And that's a concept that we constantly share in our evangelization efforts with people, because that's not what the machista culture in Hispanic countries comes from. And that attitude, that machismo 
was learned by our countries through the colonization process. And it was also reflective of the differences in authority and gender of indigenous cultures, which further compounds that, that difference. Marianismo on the other side is, as you hear, Maria. It comes from uh, those attributes and virtues of Maria, Mary, our Blessed Mother, which are chastity, purity, obedience to God and his word, service to her son, to God the Father, to humanity, self-sacrifice for the common good and especially for the family, but taken in a very toxic and extreme way, meaning that, you know, Mary submits to the will of God. We all should submit to the will of God, but Mary was the strongest woman that ever was. You know, <laughs> she submitted to the will of God and she risked her life, you know, to have that child when she could have been stoned to death. She went all the way to the uh, foot of the cross with her, her son. She was among the apostles when they were scared and finally they received the Holy Spirit and courage to announce the good news. She's a strong woman, but Marianismo turns all of that uh, to a minimization of woman. So if you have to submit to your husband, you submit just like the trainer in a circus submits a lion, you know, you know, uh, submit in an oppressive way. Obedient, the silence of Mary can be translated in Marianismo in a toxic way, like I can strike you and insult you and you keep it in the... In, in the secrecy of your heart. But that is not a healthy attitude. No, and it doesn't sound like it reflects the Magnificat, which directly quotes Mary talking about things like casting down the mighty from their thrones. It exactly. It doesn't seem like Marianismo encourages that sort of mentality. So Marianismo says the woman is the one that sacrifices her life, that takes everything negative from the husband, infidelities, and she shuts up. I will say not everybody, of course, education, having a life, a profound life of faith breaks those chains. But people that don't have the opportunity of education or immersing themselves in a life of faith through our Catholic Church can be oppressed and still live. Many, many people live under those conditions. So that is where gender ideology came, comes in as a solution because the young Hispanic lady today says that if the man is the one that has authority, has complete sexual freedom, is the one that is the decision maker, typically, unfortunately, you know, sexual abuse in the Hispanic community is very common in Latin countries is about 40 to 45 percent, you know, women are molested or, or raped. 80 percent of women and girls who cross the border undocumented, um, that's the average statistic, wow. are molested or raped while crossing the border, which is one of the things, you know, I, I, I love with all my heart, our immigrant community, but what they go through to come to find, quote, the American dream is tremendous. So many of them come hurt. But what happens, going back to our Latino girls, if men are the ones that have all of these wonderful things and they're free to do anything, 
it's not freedom, but licentiousness, I would say, libertinaje, instead of libertad. If they're the ones that have that, and gender ideology says that it is an inner feeling of mine that decides who I really identify as, so I can be a man right now, if I perceive myself to be, all I have to do then as a Latina woman is identify as a man. And I get freed from the oppression of that toxic masculinity of machismo. And I'm the one that carries the authority now. And it brings such a earth shattering dynamic to the family. And most Hispanic families don't have the knowledge to confront that reality. So it is truly a debacle that is breaking thousands of Hispanic families today. So would you say the word Latinx is uh, rooted in any Spanish-speaking culture? Absolutely not. (laughs) Okay, switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask about differences and similarities with other immigrant groups, because I think there can be an excessive temptation to do what I did earlier in the episode, which is to compare an immigrant group from Mexico or Puerto Rico or Ecuador, El Salvador, wherever, to my immigrant group that I happen to have a little bit more experience with, like Italians. Do you think that comparison has some problems? It could be because the countries that preceded us in immigration in the United States, and they were always, as they arrived, they were always the ugly duckling. They were the ones that brought the illness and that they were <laughs> the lazy ones and the criminals, etc. There's yeah. always been an ugly duckling. Uh, <laughs> they had very defined cultures in their single country. Hispanics, on the contrary, is, uh, have what I call the diversity within the diversity. We have a unity of language but with a variety of terminology and accents. We have very generalities in culture that we are very pro-life, we like family, that family is an extended family, not only a nuclear family, we're people of fiesta. Those very general things are the same, but many other aspects of the culture are completely different. In fact, it was more difficult for me to learn profoundly the Mexican culture than it was for me to adapt to the American culture. Oh, wow. Oh, yes. Yes, because it is so well developed and so ingrained that to understand it fully, it was, at least in my case, more trouble. One thing that we could name as similarities, and before I, I, I say the similarities, I will share what I always say. Please, not every Hispanic eats tacos. <laughs> I've gone to many places with people that haven't dealt with Hispanics anymore, and they always serve me Mexican food. And I <laughs> ate my first taco at age 28. So assuming that you know, because the Mexican culture is the more prevalent, that everybody is Mexican, it's very hurtful for for people from other countries, not me, because I love Mexicans with all my heart and, you know, been to their country many times. But there's some people that are very sensitive because they're stealing their own identity, Mm. which comes from their country and not just from being Latin America. The similarities with the groups that you mentioned before, like Irish, etc., the similarities are that they tend to congregate in the same locales. You know, a group of people come and they bring their friends and families. And the same happens in the communities of faith. That's why when those immigrants first came to the United States, they raised their own money. 
and they established what is now known as national parishes. That that entire parish was everything, you know, either either Polish or German or Irish, and they kept it so. But as the neighborhoods where those churches started changing and demographically, they started leaving, and whatever demography uh, starts becoming the majority takes over those churches, which is happening a lot with Hispanic communities. But we always try to strive for ecclesial integration, where the same community of faith, like many parishes right now, have mass in seven languages, there's some. And all of those communities share. And we're in the process now pastorally to help uh, parishes and dioceses help their parishes to become more inclusive in that sense, bringing the barrier of otherness. More than racism and those kinds of very sharp differences that, in my opinion, occur, but not constantly. I think there's racist, but what it, there's more is people that have bias or prejudice because of what I call otherness. You're different than me. Your customs are different than mine. Your language is different than mine. So you're suspect or strange to me. So I bring a barrier up. And through the culture of encounter, the, the fifth encounter process led by the USCCB so successfully accomplished was to create places of encounter so we can know each other. So you're no longer that Irish guy or that Italian guy that is so weird or that African person that is so weird to me. I know you now. I know your name. You told me about your culture. We shared food. We shared the way we play cards. You know, it's like a crazy eights in English is Ocholoco in Spanish and how we did it with uh, with our families and all of that brings down the barrier of otherness. It puts a face to that name of that strange other. And that's how we accomplish the elimination of bias, prejudice and racism. I think this applies just as much to me as anybody else. I think one obstacle for native born Catholics anyway, that keeps that otherness there is not really realizing the contributions that Hispanic immigrant populations can make to the general life of the church. Could you say a little bit about how those contributions can be realized? The very first one is that Hispanics right now comprise almost 50% of the Catholic population in the United States. So first of all, we had a significant amount of faithful, which bring a significant amount of gifts of time, talent, and treasure. Many have a ton of talent and dedication. I've seen in Hispanic Latinos, the premier group of volunteers. In fact, many parishes have five or six people serving uh, RCIA, Adult Faith Formation, Youth Ministry, CCD. But the Hispanic minister does all of those positions. And many times some parishes have a paid person, which typically makes less and does six times more. But some parishes, many, many parishes, those functions are done by volunteers. Something else that we bring to the church in the United States is a passion for the church. Our popular religiosity is intense. Our church and prayer life is intense. We bring vitality in any number of events. Some Hispanic events, I've done Hispanic events of 20 people, and I've done Hispanic events of 20,000. 
gathered mm -hmm. in one place. So it is a vibrant source of ministry. Also, most Hispanics become bilingual so they can serve in any language as well. We also bring an extended sense of family. And family is a community of life and love. And we translate that into our life in church and in parishes. We're very hospitable. And that's why you see a lot of Hispanic Latinos being ushers and being the people that are going outside to the periphery and seeking people to come to church and not, you know, having an event at church and waiting, you know, like the movie says, if you build it, they will come. No, we got to go out and get them. You know, yeah. sometimes we plan events and we don't go, if we don't go get the people, we don't have new converts in the church. That's something else. And uh, the Hispanic community uh, brings joy. And it also is very pro-life because we're so pro-family. So how can the rest of the community help those populations deal with whatever particular challenges they might be experiencing to the family and to marriage? First of all, reach out. You can learn a few phrases. Hola, como esta? Hi, how are you? Bienvenido. Welcome. You're part of our community. Where are you from? Which some people say it's insulting now, but I think that's you know, where are you from is, is a perfect initiation of any conversation. The initial way I would do it is sharing food so each person from each country can explain their food and their pride in, in their food and start establishing relationships with them. And if you don't know the language and a particular person doesn't know your language, there's a lot of bilingual people that can mediate between the two and you start uniting. So reaching out to Hispanics and making them feel included, you matter and your traditions matter. And your mere presence, I would say the ministry of presence is crucial for Hispanics because many times we feel not wanted or lesser than, or that we bother. You know, sometimes we call ourselves the people of the basement because, you know, there's two activities, you know, the Hispanics get the basement room or whatever. We'll change that dynamic sometimes and reach out and you will discover one of the greatest treasures that our church has to offer the Hispanic Latino cultural family. I can do uh, hola, como esta, bienvenido. Wait, I don't know. I can't. I didn't, I didn't do, I didn't do bienvenido right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lucia, thank you again for joining us. Uh, where can we find you online? Well, you can find me in ricardoilucia.com. Also, lucialuzondo.com. Also, I urge you to visit the Person and Identity Project website at personandidentity.com. And if you want to locate me as well and learn far more how through marriage and family ministry, you can accomplish ecclesial integration. And while making your parish a marriage building parish, you can visit marriagebuildingusa.org. And we'll have those links in the episode notes so that you can check those out. Lucia, thank you again for joining us. I have two questions for you before you go. In our next segment, my co-host Kara and I are talking about the movie Coco that came out a few years ago, but I've been on pins and needles wondering whether or not it's going to get a thumbs up or thumbs down from you. Any thoughts on Coco? Yeah, in general, yes. So long as we're yes. clear that the Santa Muerte, you know, it's not what we worship. <laughs> uh, everything else is very, very culturally correct for the Mexican culture. 
Okay. Good. And actually, in the future, we're going to have an episode on West Side Story, mm. uh, which is particularly about Puerto Rican immigrants. Do you have any feelings on West Side Story? Yeah, it's 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 a reality. It's it's very real. It's very okay. real. I don't have any 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 problems with it. Okay. Well, Lucia, thank you so much for joining us. We've had a real uh, pleasure having you on. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you all who are listening to this podcast. May God bless you abundantly. We'll be off for Christmas, so we won't have an episode two weeks from now like we normally would. And that means our next episode will be January 7th in the new year. So in the meantime, Merry Christmas. We must say that the essence and role of the family are in the final analysis specified by love. Hence, the family has the mission to guard, reveal, and communicate love, and this is a living reflection of, and a real sharing in, God's love for humanity, and the love of Christ the Lord for the Church, His Bride. And we are back to talk about the Pixar film Coco with Kara Bach. Welcome back, Kara. Thanks for having me. We have just watched Coco, and Kara, this is your first time watching the movie, right? It is. It was a good find. I uh, I really enjoyed it. We apologize in advance. Neither of us have any sort of Mexican or otherwise Latino background. If we mispronounce anything or if we get details about Mexican culture wrong, please accept our apologies in advance. We're doing our best. <laughs> Coco was directed by Lee Unkrich and Adrian Molina for Pixar, came out in 2017, and is about a young Mexican boy who's obsessed with music in spite of his family, which has a personal grudge against music for trying to divide the family. And so there's a big conflict, or you expect there to be a big conflict, between the boy's passion for music and his commitment to his family, which is played out when he is magically transported to the land of the dead on Dia de Muertos, the Mexican cultural holiday, which... Kara, what do you think of Pixar's portrayal of this in terms of like how religious is it? Honestly, I was a little on guard because clearly this is not a Catholic belief. Right. And especially because I think, you know, most, you know, Latino cultures and particularly Mexico certainly has a history of being very Catholic. And so I was a little concerned that they might like start mixing some of these things together. I felt like they largely left Catholicism out of it. It felt like they made little nods here and there. Like there was, you know, a there's a crucifix and or I guess a cross and a little picture of Our Lady of Guadalupe, like in the corner next to the ofrenda. Yeah, definitely in the margins of the movie. Yeah, it felt very like there's one scene where somebody made a sign of the cross. So it really felt to me sort of like they weren't trying to make this anything religious. It felt a little bit more like in the realm of Santa to me, like this is sort of a cultural thing that everybody participates in, but it's less clear about the reality of it. And then obviously for the storytelling purposes, it is real, but doesn't seem to be like making any kind of assertions about the reality of this particular Mayan belief or Aztec belief. Yeah. Which in real life also, it's not entirely clear what the origins of Dia de Muertos are. Some sources indicate that it is descended from European Christian traditions around Hallowtide, namely All Hallows Eve, and then it was adopted into or adapted for Mexican culture. And then other sources indicate that it might have some Aztec origins, uh, which are certainly not coherent with Christianity because they're paying tribute to 
an Aztec deity called Mixcoatl. So we don't think that the movie is actually trying to encourage any sort of neo-paganism here. I personally think that Pixar was just trying to not get in trouble with anybody <laughs> because they could have been criticized for making the movie too religious, too pagan, too sanitized. So they, they had a fine line to walk. I'm not saying they did it perfectly, but it could have been a lot worse. So if your takeaway watching this movie is this movie is encouraging paganism, we would not similarly encourage paganism with the movie. I feel like the set of bullies is trying to encourage is simply a celebration of Mexican heritage. Yeah. You know, my husband had studied Spanish and he lived in Mexico for almost a year after he graduated from college. And so he was saying that it was very clear that they had somebody on staff as a cultural, like a cultural consultant must have been involved because there were little things like he was dying laughing when the abuelita is like beating up the mariachi with her shoe he's like that's like a very mexican trope to like beat up people with their shoes like you have, <laughs> you hide from grandma with her shoes so it seemed to me more like you know just the the kind of visuals and the art and all of it seemed to just be more of a celebration of something that is like particularly mexican in style and flair lots of cultures have fun traditions that it's like it can be great, especially as a kid, to feel like your culture is being celebrated. That sort of feels like the end goal for Pixar is like, not to be cynical about it. It's like, this is a good market. Like, we'd yeah. love for, you know, like, kids in America and in Mexico who would love to see themselves represented. Like, why not? And it worked. I mean, this this movie set box office records in Mexico. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I think there's there's room for a little bit of cynicism. But from what I understand, also, people who hail from that culture were pretty okay with this portrayal of it, which I think was definitely a bigger priority for the creative people behind the scenes than actually reaching some religious understanding. Yeah. And I think for our purposes, it's probably best to apply C.S. Lewis's disclaimer from The Great Divorce to this, uh, even though the movie didn't explicitly give that disclaimer. Just, this is not how it really is. That's not what we're trying to do. Don't interpret this as any cosmological or eschatological point about the world. It's just using it to tell a story. This sort of reminds me of our discussion about Soul, where we're like, I take some issue with the specifics of the way that they're describing this, but I mean, as with all things Pixar, you know, I think it's speaking to eternal truths that yeah. are like good takeaways for kids. And a big one right up front is his treatment of death, mm. that you can't make a movie about Dia de Muertos and not talk about death. And the whole, for most of the movie, the kid is meeting people who are deceased. Blanket spoilers for Coco. We will be talking about everything that happens in the movie all the way through the end. When I was about to see the movie for the first time a few years ago, I thought, okay, well, here we go. They're going to invent some half-baked theology about the afterlife. And to their credit, they avoid that as well, because their top priority was not to get in trouble with anybody, apparently, including me, because this isn't really a point about the afterlife. The land of the dead that the main character, Miguel, visits is not a permanent final state. It's also transitory. You're only in it as long as you are remembered by people you knew in life or by people who have heard stories told by people you knew in life and so on. And you see a character in the Land of the Dead experience what they call the final death, which is very solemn for a Pixar movie. But uh, And, and the, the person who's explaining this says, it happens to everybody eventually. So 
the land of the dead is not like purgatory. It's not heaven. It's not hell. Uh, it's honestly a little bit like a Mexican version of the great divorce where it's just a passing through either way. They do not give any, any indication what happens after the final death. It's really just a, a holding area that helps you reflect on the fact of death and also the people who remember you in life. So I was pleasantly surprised by that. And it's used to great effect for the purposes of the movie and the story it's telling. Yeah, it's interesting, too. It reminded me a lot of kind of the memento mori sort of tradition yeah. in Catholicism and just like a more holistic acceptance of the fact that like death is a part of our journey in Catholicism, we believe that it's, you know, we are going to die and be reunited with God in the beatific vision. But I think it it's kind of a healthy view of the fact that, yeah, we're passing out from this life. And a good reminder, and that's the thing that I find interesting about Dia de Muertos in general, is just that it's sort of, I, I can see why, if this was a tradition in ancient Mexico, why when you know, the colonists came, they would immediately have picked up, they're like, oh, we have All Saints Day, we have All Souls Day. And like, these things are closely related in the sense that like, yes, people go on and like, we need to pray for them. And they don't, obviously, this is not about prayer, they do it more as remembrance. But even for, you know, for Catholics, and we believe in purgatory, and that the souls in purgatory need our prayers. Like half the characters you meet in this movie are walking mementos mori because they are skeletons. Yeah. <laughs> you cannot turn away from the reality of death. You cannot sweep it under the rug, which so often happens in pop culture. Um, and to this movie's credit, it definitely stands in contrast to that. And just one more note about how it treats religion. It can't ignore it completely. You do see either Aztec or Mayan, I think Aztec pyramids, when they enter the, the realm of the dead. And the alabrijes, those spirit guides, are definitely more associated with um, Aztec imagery. And in fact, one of the first ones you see, this little green serpent, it starts out looking very large, like the Aztec deity Quetzalcoatl, but it turns out to be this kind of little silly thing that doesn't have any impact on the story. So I don't think they're necessarily taking like folk religion too seriously. And then on the flip side, they do work in some, like Kara was saying, some Catholic imagery kind of around the margins. Like you see a character make the sign of the cross at one point. The town is called Santa Cecilia, the patron saint of music. And music is very important to a few of the characters in this movie. And then the hero's like dog sidekick. His name is Dante, which is a nod to the author of the Divine Comedy, which is also very much about the underworld and traveling through with a spirit guide. Dante's spirit guide in the Divine Comedy is Virgil. So with that, yeah, why don't we turn to the role that music plays and especially in relation to the family? It was an interesting, it felt a little bit different than a typical, my parents won't let me do what I want to do kind of storyline. Yeah. I feel like they gave it more heft. So just to set up the backstory of this family, Generations ago, the great-great-grandfather of the main character in the modern day left his wife and his daughter to go pursue a career in music, and as far as they know, he never returned. So as a result, the great-great-grandmother banned all music in the household, and they're like the only family in the village that hates music, except for the main character, Miguel, who is secretly like a great guitarist and a singer and wants to be a musician, 
and like he's talking to the mariachis while he's shining shoes and like looking up to them. But his family, in contrast, has gone into business making shoes, and that's their very practical means of sustaining themselves. So it's funny when you said that the grandma using shoes as a weapon is like a trope in Mexican culture, because I didn't notice that at all, because it was so natural to the story. These are shoe people, so naturally they're going to they're gonna know shoe combat. <laughs> anyway, this is a no-music family. The son, Miguel, wants to grow up and play music, and you think that this is going to be kind of your typical straightforward parents don't understand, my family has to understand me, they will come around in the end, right? Yeah, it's, it sort of starts out that way, for sure. And I, I think, I mean, this is sort of a very Pixar thing where they make it a more interesting and robust reflection on family. And, you know, I think as a from a Christian point of view, certainly a reflection on not ignoring the talents that you've been given, but also putting them in a context. Not to like fast forward to the end, but you know, part of his journey is both realizing that he is incredibly talented and that he you know, performs and people think he's really great. But it's also this process of realizing that losing his family would be more devastating than losing music. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, obviously at the end of this, there's a happy ending. He gets both. But yeah, it feels like the the, the character development is more around his realization that the passions are not necessarily the thing and that like dying and losing my family forever is not worth my pursuit of music. In the beginning, they make you think that the great-great-grandfather, whose identity is not known to Miguel, but he is led to believe that his great-great-grandfather is Ernesto de la Cruz, a very famous musician in this story, who died in the 40s. He gets killed in a in a performance by a big bell. Like, the bell literally tolls for Ernesto de la Cruz. So that was like a neat way of expressing death musically. Miguel grows up idolizing de la Cruz, wants to be just like him. Not helping, de la Cruz's recurring encouragement to others is seize your moment. Miguel's watching clips from de la Cruz's old movies, where de la Cruz is setting up an opposition between following the rules on the one hand and following your heart. On the other hand, which is the way this conflict gets set up a lot of the time, the family is trying to impose these rules on you, like no music, but your heart says you just gotta, you just gotta sing. But they do escape this dilemma because it turns out that his actual great great grandfather is better than we think, and Dela Cruz is way, way, way worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to give Jason credit. He definitely called it after once you once you meet the grandfather before you know who he is. Like I bet you. This is what's happening. And you think Miguel is going to have to make this choice because he visits Ernesto de la Cruz's mausoleum because de la Cruz is from his hometown of Santa Cecilia. And his mausoleum significantly does not have any family attachments. It's just about him alone. Whereas in Miguel's family's ofrenda, it's like six people all on the same arranged table. Because for Dela Cruz, artists cannot belong to just one family. The, you know, he says, the, the world is me familia. The world is my family. It was very striking when he shows up and he's like, I'm your great grandson. And he's like, okay. Like, <laughs> well, so my first thought was like, so you have no idea how many children you have floating around. Right. Okay. Yep. <laughs> right. Very funny. As Miguel is traveling through the land of the dead to meet up with Ernesto, he comes across this other character, Hector, who's like this shabby 
mostly unwanted guy in the afterlife who's like on the verge of being forgotten and experiencing the final death. But he's going to help out Miguel. Miguel's going to help him out because he can't visit the world of the living on Dia de Muertos and see his, his daughter. We don't know who that is. Turns out they're both really all about music. They go on a few different adventures. Hector helps Miguel get out of a few tight spots. And surprise, Hector is actually Miguel's great-great-grandfather and the former partner of Dela Cruz, who got tired of playing music on the road and wanted to be reunited with his family. And when he told Dela Cruz that and announced his intentional leave for his family, Dela Cruz murdered him, stole his songs, and became famous because of that. <laughs> so you think Dela Cruz is just like a hotshot celebrity and turns out he's a murderer? I don't know if this movie has like inside information on real celebrities <laughs> that they want to share with us. <laughs> it's a little dark. I'm not going to not gonna lie. I was thinking about it later. It is really setting up the contrast between even more so than his desire for fame, which is obviously his driving motivation. It feels a little bit like a repudiation of just selfishness. And it's kind of setting up like selfishness against family. And the fact that he over, he being De La Cruz over and over again says things like seizing your moment. And you come to realize that seize your moment is not just like, go out on center stage and win a singing competition. It's do whatever it takes to be successful. Yeah. it's. I think it's an interesting turning on its head of the common sentiment about like, follow your dreams, follow your passion. This is all you need to do. And really like recentering the focus on like, on the one hand, passions are good because obviously we see the music being a very like life giving thing to the family and on the other hand, again, like putting it in the context of both like morality and like what is good for the family. Right. And the, the family is ultimately what helps make sense of all this and put music in its proper context rather than this disproportionate love of music and self that Dela Cruz has, which was the point of the quote in the beginning of our segment. That was from uh, JP2's Encyclical Familiaris Consortio, number 17, if you want to look it up, which is that the essence and role of the family are in the final analysis specified by love, not specified by whatever you're passionate about or by music. That is at the service of love. And you see that play out here because at a certain point, Miguel's got to make a choice because his deceased family members in the land of the dead have the ability to send him back. But their condition is you can't play music anymore, which is not fair to him. But He's willing, by the end of it, because of how much he's grown in his relationship with Hector, he's willing to make that sacrifice, even though that's kind of an unfair demand on him, because he has learned that, as they put it, family comes first, which is not a decision that Dela Cruz made, and is not a decision that his family thinks that Hector made, the great-great-grandfather. Mm -hmm. So his great-great-grandmother, Imelda, thinks that Hector chose music over family, what she doesn't know is that he was murdered before he had the chance to come back to his family, <laughs> which is why she banned music in the first place. So eventually that all gets straightened out, but only in the context of the family, which I thought was really cool how they did that and how they escaped that apparent conflict between family and music. Yeah. And I thought it was really sweet too. the, the whole reason why. Yeah. I think, I think Hector's journey is the most instructive one because on he did sort of, take the typical path of like, 
I'm leaving my family. I'm going to follow my passion. And we actually get to see the fact that it's not just like, oh, it's not working out or, oh, I miss my wife. It was this very particular connection between the music that he created for his daughter specifically and the fact that he missed being there with his daughter and the way in which family makes his music meaningful. And so that being, you know, obviously the great tragedy being that he gets murdered before he can reunite and sort of fulfill his realization. But I thought that was like a really beautiful sort of little microcosm of fatherhood too, that the thing he missed the most was actually his little daughter who he felt like he had abandoned and was like the reason for his music in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so I got absolute chills at the point where Hector and Miguel reached the mutual realization that they're related and that Hector is Miguel's great, great grandfather. I have never seen in a movie other than this, a moment where you realize that not only are you meeting your distant ancestor face to face, that you already have known him and gone on adventures with him and shared things in common with him, and that he's realizing this at the same time that you are. I've never seen that before in a movie. I thought that moment was absolutely incredible. And like a totally different way of portraying family life in fiction. That was really cool. I absolutely love that. Not the multiple parts where I cried during this movie. I mean, like the whole last 10 minutes, I was just like blubbering. Yep. It was, I mean... I'm trying to think what it like. I think when when you realize like how much he like him talking about Coco and like that it's his grandmother, just like oh, his daughter. <laughs> yep, same. There is a part at the very end of the movie where Coco, the great grandmother, is pretty much about to die, and if she dies without remembering and passing on a memory in life about her father. Hector, Hector's going to be forgotten and he's going to experience the final death. So there's like a lot at stake in this moment. And Miguel has returned to the land of the living and he is in front of his family and he has to convince them to let him play music because it might be the only thing that Coco remembers anymore. And this family, which is banned music, allows him to play music. His family in the afterlife has already accepted music. They have accepted Hector back. They're cool with music. They have sent Miguel back to the land of the living with no conditions. He doesn't have to give up music. And he plays music in front of his living family, which still hates music. And he plays this song, which is the centerpiece of the movie, Remember Me, for Coco. And everybody cries. Like, everybody in the movie is crying. Everybody watching the movie is crying. Because she finally remembers, like, this touching moment of her father when she was a little kid. And... It's the only time in the movie where she remembers the name of her daughter, Miguel's grandmother, Elena. Like, absolutely savage for anybody who doesn't want to cry watching a movie. I'm really glad I didn't see this in the theaters. That would have been, that would have been hard. This is not, this is an ugly cry movie. This is not a, like, be in public yeah. crying movie. It's It's beautiful. Absolutely worthwhile moment. But just be prepared. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's real rough. <laughs> old great-grandmother Coco has this, like, little family album with the picture of Hector that was torn out of the family photo, which is a really cool contrast, actually, because the first picture you have of Hector that he wants Miguel to take back to the land of the living and put in the ofrenda so he can visit his living family on Dia de Muertos, that is just a picture of him, solo headshot, and it gets lost. This picture, its proper place 
is in the frame with the rest of the family photo where it's restored to. So it's like they're saying visually the proper context of the individual is the family. Like the individual mm. can't exist independent of the family. That was like a really cool way of visually doing that. And ultimately, Miguel says family comes first, willing to give up music, but the family is in the end supportive so they also don't force him to give it up. So he doesn't have to leave the family like they thought Hector did. But also the family doesn't force him to give up music for really no good reason. So it all works Everybody out. Everybody wins. Yeah. <laughs> there is a healthy both and that this this movie finds because Ernesto de la Cruz turns out to be a murderer. <laughs> I thought this was this is a pretty tidy movie. It does a lot of heavy lifting with not a ton of plot points. One other tidbit I found in the trivia, when de la Cruz has a security lock up Miguel and Hector, he throws Miguel into a sinkhole, mm. which I thought was pretty random, but I found in the trivia uh, cenote sinkhole i hope i'm pronouncing that right it was sometimes used in mayan sacrifices at chichen itza which is basically what dela cruz is doing he's sacrificing miguel to protect his reputation as a great musician uh, and not a murderer well it's also extremely mexican just like those sinkholes in general like you jason and i are looking online like they're a big tourist thing where you can like go swimming in these in these holes that are all natural forming it's super cool I have one more thing, which is is going to be outside my competency, but it's about the music, because the music is very important to this movie. Mm. So the song Remember Me, you hear Dela Cruz sing a version of it in his performance that he eventually dies in at the beginning of the movie that takes place in the 1940s. And in Dela Cruz's version, the last note leaps up a couple of steps. He lived the kind of life you dream about. When he was crushed by a giant bell. It's kind of a flashier flourish. It travels away from the, the note that it begins on, because that whole last line, remember me, is all the same note, except for when it leaps up a couple of steps. It seems like it makes sense, but you notice that he struggles singing it right before he dies. Then you hear Hector sing it in a flashback to his daughter when his, when his daughter is a young child. The last note there, it's not quite the same. It stays on the same note throughout the end of the song for the whole last word. It's less flashy, and you expect it to leap up a couple steps, like in this kind of climactic flourish, but it actually makes more sense for what the song is, which is a song for his young daughter, and it's more natural for him to sing it. It comes more naturally. He doesn't have to struggle the way Dela Cruz did. And the word being sung on that note is me. So the difference is whether I will leave my family out of self-interest the way that song leaves that note at the end and tries to leap up to a higher note, or if I will stay on that note for my family, for my daughter. I support this analysis. That is as much musical analysis as you're going to hear from me. <laughs> okay, well, I think that will do it for us, right, Kara? I think so. Thank you for introducing me to a wonderful new piece of Pixar art. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. It would help us out a lot if you tell your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you. <laughs>